going to start a new series today from Titus. And we'll be looking at what it means to be a relevant church. And this is a theme that I'm really excited about. Um, we hold ministers' meetings here, and for a whole year, I took at those ministers' meetings the theme of being a relevant church. And it was amazing just how many ministers were coming and picking up on that theme and beginning to preach about it in their own churches. And I thought, well, I'm sure everyone's taken that and preached it in their own congregations. And there are a lot of things that we could talk about in terms of being a relevant church that we could well pick up on together. So we're going to look at being a relevant church and we're going to use Paul's letter to Titus as the basis for all that we're going to share together over the next few weeks around this theme. And I'm going to start by just reading the introduction to this letter today and putting the whole series in context, but focusing in particularly on some of the things that are raised in these early verses. So, being a relevant church, and we're actually looking today at a relevant word. The word that's preached has to be a relevant word if it's going to see the church being a relevant church in the community where God has placed it. So, a relevant word for a relevant church. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, as you go through this letter, there are five themes that Paul picks up on that have to do with this church becoming a relevant church on the island of Crete. We're going to look at it in some detail. The the, the thing that he mentions really goes on to mention, we've just stopped at verse 5, but if you read on, he then goes into what it means to be an elder in the church, what it means to have an example in the church. So... Today we're looking at a relevant word, but the next thing we'll look at as we go through this series is having a relevant example. The church has to have an example in the community if it's relevant. Not just enough to be a talking shop, you've got to demonstrate it. So one of the things that's being approached in this whole question of eldership is having a demonstration of the word, an example in the midst of the community. And that's important. And we'll be taking that as the second theme. The next point that comes up as you go through Titus is that there needs to be times when as you are um, working these things through, you need to be quite bold in making sure that everyone comes up to that standard. Now that is where Paul delivers a strong rebuke. Now I know talking about a rebuke is quite hard. But you see, you cannot be a relevant church if you are apathetic. If you just think, oh well, we'll just hang around here and we just trust that we'll be relevant. We won't be relevant if we're apathetic. 
So we have to look at how you challenge people into new levels of spiritual living and spiritual authority. So the rebuke that Paul brings in Titus, I think is something that every church that wants to be relevant has to stop and consider. How do we pull our socks up? How do we move up to that next level of relevance? So that's important. As you go through into chapter 2, you discover that you're really looking at things, again, to do with lifestyle. And then there are issues of awareness. And finally, he moves on to themes of partnership. And we can unpack all of those as we go through. But it's just very interesting to me that Paul is taking up this theme in this way with this particular church on Crete. Now, we're talking about the church on Crete, but in reality, there were a number of churches in Crete because Paul says to Titus that he should appoint elders in every city. And we will be seeing that that principle of elders for every church is something that still holds today. Okay? I know that uh, in those days, you might have said, well, hold on, they've got a city church principle. Maybe we ought to have a city church principle in London, for example. There's just one church in London with a handful of elders and then we're all split into congregations under those elders. I don't actually think that's a workable model. I often heard it put forward, but I don't think it's a workable model. And I don't think that we should take from Scripture and say that that is what's being said that you just have elders for a city. You have elders for a church. If you've only got one church in the city, you will have elders in that city. If you've got six churches in a city, each of those churches will need elders. Now that doesn't preclude the fact that some of those elders might be of a stature that they, in a sense, are also city elders with an ability to have relevance beyond their local congregation. I don't have a problem with that, but I believe that every church needs its eldership team. And when these elders were being put in place, they weren't just being put in place in the city, they were being put in place for the church in the city. Now, there's all sorts of things we can unpack on that, and we will go there, because I promise you there's a lot of interesting things there. And a relevant church has to think beyond the church. When you appoint elders for a relevant church, you are appointing elders for the community and not just elders for the church. Okay? We can unpack that a little bit as we go through. But when we're talking about the church on Crete, there were a number of churches. But in a sense, because Paul had been there and ministered, even though there were a number of churches, we can talk about them, as it were, as a whole. Now, Paul had a previous encounter with Crete that was very brief. When Paul had been um, taken prisoner and was being transferred to Rome, the ship that he was on stopped in Crete. And Paul actually, and you can read this in Acts, Paul gave his opinion that they would do well to stop and winter in Crete. Now, I don't know whether at that point he was thinking, I could really do with preaching the gospel in this island. Hmm? But he was obviously getting a vision for this place, even though at that point he was a prisoner in transit. Now, they didn't winter in Crete, as you know. They moved on. They were in one um, 
port in Crete and then they were going to move to another but in fact they went out to sea and that's when the shipwreck occurred and they ended up um, shipwrecked off Malta. But in that passing encounter with Crete, something must have been birthed in Paul's heart. Here is a place where I want to come back and preach the gospel. Now, people didn't have a very high opinion of those who lived on the island of Crete. Uh, Even the sort of poets of the day made rude comments about the people who lived on Crete. They thought of them as sort of real, you know, yokels, people that didn't count for much, island dwellers of little consequence. And it seems as if Paul, to some extent, shared the opinion. But that did not put him off going there to preach the gospel because he knew that the gospel has the power to transform. And we see that. Now, when we were looking at the few verses that start this letter, did you notice that Paul says an awful lot about the word before he even gets round to saying hello? Hmm? Did you notice that? It starts off, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. And then verse 4 says, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. But between his sort of, hi, I'm Paul, how are you, Titus, he packs in a whole lot of things about the word. Now, I think the reason it all gets packed in here, in the introduction, is because these are the things that Paul is passionate about and he sees as the foundation for absolutely everything that he does. He might be going on to talk about eldership. He might be going on to deliver a rebuke. He might be going on to talk about lifestyle and awareness and partnership. But even before he goes on to any of those things, he's saying, look, the real thing that fires me up is this word of God that we preach. And so everything about being a relevant church comes out of this passionate commitment to the word of God. Now, it's very interesting to me that Paul has left Titus to put things in order on Crete. Now, that means that as far as Paul was concerned, the main part of the work had already been done. Otherwise, he wouldn't have left, would he? (laughs) And what he had done was to preach the gospel in every city and see people come to salvation. And having done that, he's content to say, right, I've done my job, I'm moving on now. And Titus, you can stay and you can appoint the elders in the city. Now that's interesting because at one point Paul would have appointed the elders himself. But now he wants to press on to other ministry. And even though appointing elders is an important apostolic function, he's prepared to delegate that apostolic function to a member of his team because he feels that the bulk of his work is completed. I've preached the gospel on Crete and people have come to salvation. I'm ready to move on. I can go somewhere else and preach now. Titus, you stay here. There are still things to do. Elders need to be appointed. The people need to be rebuked. There's uh, lifestyle issues to talk about. There's whole areas of awareness they've got to come into. There's partnership they've got to understand. But I'm off. I'm out of here. <laughs> I've preached the gospel. I've, I've seen people saved. I've, I've done the work. 
of an evangelist, you might say, but an apostolic evangelist who's preached the word with power and authority, able to deal with the principalities and the powers on the island, whether they be physical or spiritual. He's come in and he's dealt with those things and he's saying, all you need to do now is to set things in order. Now that's great. To be a relevant church, you need to set things in order. But you know, you can have dead order. In fact, order can sometimes be very dead. In fact, there are some order freaks out there who prefer dead order to live chaos. Hmm? You know people like that? That It must be in order. Hmm? It it doesn't matter whether it's alive or dead, but it must be in order. Hmm? And if anyone steps out of line, we'll shoot them on sight. Okay? Well, now, that kind of order is not the kind of order you want. That's just arranging dead bones. What Titus was left with was the challenge of a, a spiritual upheaval that had been produced on the island. You know, when he was told to appoint elders, he wasn't appointing elders over a dead church. He was appointing elders over a bunch of vibrant believers who needed steering into new levels of commitment and life. Now, how did he get this vibrant bunch of believers? Well, he did it by preaching the word. And as you unpack his initial greeting, you begin to see the things that burn in Paul's heart about the word of God. Let me just pick up some of the phrases. Okay, I'm using the New King James, but you can see these same, same, phrase, same phrases coming out in other versions too. One aspect that stands out to me is he talks about the acknowledgement of truth. And I'm going to pick up on that. That seems to be something quite interesting. He says that there is an acknowledgement of truth, and then he goes on and says, um, which accords with godliness. talks about the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth. I want to talk about the acknowledgement of the truth because I think there's something there that we need to know if we want to be a relevant church preaching a relevant word. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the truth. Okay? Second thing I want to pick up on, and I'm partly doing this because I haven't got a PowerPoint display to go with this message. The second thing I want to pick up on is the power of preaching. There is a power in preaching. And Paul had preached the word. And he's passionate about preaching. It comes over in those verses. What does he say? It was manifested in due time through preaching, which was committed me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. And then the third thing that comes out for me is this, that, that part of the manifestation that there needs to be is a manifestation of godliness. Okay? He's talked about the truth that accords with godliness. And he's talked about preaching that brings a manifestation of the word. Now, when we're talking about a manifestation of God's word in a community, it's not just enough to have the word proclaimed. The word also needs to be fleshed out in front of everybody's eyes. So there needs to be a manifestation of godliness. Now, I don't know what Crete was like before Paul came, but I'm sure that after Paul had preached the gospel and established a church in every city, that there was a manifestation of godliness on the island. Now, I'm not saying it had gone all of the way, because if it had gone all of the way, 
Titus wouldn't have been told to rebuke them and bring them into line. But something had happened through the word. Paul's preaching. I don't know, he must have sort of gone from city to city on that island and proclaimed the word of God. I don't know how long he was there. We don't even know at which point in his life this happens, except it must have been after he'd been released from that imprisonment in Rome that's referred to in the book of Acts. This is the bit of Acts that isn't in the Bible. (laughs) Where he came out of prison and carried on preaching. He went to Ephesus, he went to Crete, he might even have gone on to Spain. The things that he had on his heart to do. But there must have been this time when he came and preached in Crete. And he must have gone through the island proclaiming the word and making such a difference. Now, why do I believe that when we're talking about a relevant word, that the acknowledgement of truth is so important? Well, Paul's day was not dissimilar from our own. In Paul's day, the question of absolute truth was something that was discussed almost ad nauseum. You had Socrates followed by Plato, Plato talked about the different levels at which things would be understood, you know, the basic level of conjecture followed by belief, then leading to understanding, then to rational intuition. That was Plato's theory. But when he was talking about his forms, he'd say that everything had a form, but that which you saw with your senses didn't necessarily conform fully to the form that existed. Well, that's confusing, isn't it? Now, it might be true, but just imagine, you know, you've got all of these people hearing this kind of stuff, and one of the big questions that they would have been left with, well, is there anything out there called truth? Or is truth just what people happen to perceive by their own senses? Other philosophies that were around in the day, you've got the Stoicism that was basically a, a form of fatalism, and these are big generalizations, and the Epicureans that atomized everything. And so there was all of this, and, and, and the ordinary people. You know, if you'd ask the ordinary person, what is truth? They would probably have been as blank as Pontius Pilate was. See, Now this is why Pilate says, what is truth? Because it was against a background of discussion where people thought, well, is there any truth at all, you know? Isn't truth just what happens to be your personal truth? What's truth to you might not be truth to me. And Paul was saying there needs to be an acknowledgement of the truth. And one of the reasons there needs to be an acknowledgement of the truth is because there needs to be a stabilizing in the midst of society. But when Paul talks about the acknowledgement of the truth, he's not just throwing in another philosophical concept to say, well, you've heard all of the others, now think on this one. As far as Paul is concerned, the truth is Jesus. When Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? The irony was that truth was standing right in front of him. And Pilate didn't realise it. And if Jesus had just said, I am... Pilate would have considered that presumptuous. And in fact, the Jews would definitely have killed Jesus if he'd said, I am, at that particular point, claiming to be God. But the reality is that the gospel that Paul preached was totally centred on Jesus. He didn't want to come and just throw another philosophy into the mix 
for people to say, what are we going to do with this one? When he preached on Mars Hill, when he was in Athens, people had got itching ears. They wanted to hear a new philosophical exposition. They were always looking for something new. And when Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection, they were so superstitious that they believed he was preaching about a new God and the goddess called resurrection. Now, that's how dim people can get, you know. But in the midst of it all, you can see that there was this lack of awareness that in the midst of all that's chaotic, there can be something definite that you can hang on to. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, for someone who's versed in uh, platonic philosophy, that you might not struggle with where that comes on the level of things, whether it's conjecture or belief or understanding or, or rational intuition. But, you know, there is a sense that when you get to know Jesus, you know that you know the truth. And that's what Paul is saying. That in the midst of everything, we need to say, hey, there is truth. Now, you might think that that's a hard message to preach when everyone has had it up to here with all of the philosophers with their arguments. But we still need to say that Jesus is the truth. We need to say it. We don't have to wrap it up into some kind of philosophical package. Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And to be honest, when it comes to the claims of Jesus, you can't pick and choose. If Jesus says, I am the truth, you have to take him at his word. Because if you don't take Jesus at his word, you are left with nothing. Nothing. See, some people think you can pick and choose about Jesus. Well, I don't really want to believe he's the son of God. I really like to think he's just a good teacher. Well, if Jesus was just a good teacher, his qualifications were atrocious. Because in the midst of his good teaching, he was making claims that you're already saying are not substantiatable. You can't substantiate them. Well, that's not a good teacher, is it? (laughs) That's not a good teacher. The claims of Jesus leave you with no option. He was either mad in that he was totally deceived or he was bad in that he was out there trying to deceive other people or third option is he's what he claims to be. You can't just dismiss Jesus and say, well, we pick and choose. I'd like to think he was a good teacher. I'd like to think he said some things that were right. But if you say some things that are right and other things that are wrong, and one of the things that you say about yourself is that you're the truth, the moment you lie, you've denied that you're the truth. That's not too hard to work out, is it? Now, God cannot lie. Because if God lied, he would be denying himself. Because God is truth. So we are faced with something really big here. And this is what Paul preached. He didn't sort of sidle in and say, you know, I just want to slip in a little thought here, you know, that might fit in amidst all of your other philosophies. Maybe you'd like to consider this one. He didn't come and say, well, here's another God to add to your pantheon. 
And whilst you're at it, you can slip in the goddess called resurrection as well. He wasn't coming on that line. He was basically saying, when I preach Jesus, I'm preaching the truth. And the only way to respond to that is to acknowledge the truth. Now, it's very interesting that Paul says, it's almost as if he makes a distinction. It talks about the faith of the elect and the acknowledgement of the truth. I think we've got to get out there with confidence and preach what we know to be the truth. Now, there will be those who acknowledge it in faith. But the truth is not dependent upon the faith of those who acknowledge it. Do you understand what I mean by that? If we are just coming around and saying, here's a truth you might like to consider. It could be true for you. And if you believe it, then it becomes true. Then somehow we are denying the gospel. Paul was prepared to say, this is the truth. And the truth is in Jesus. And that's what we have to face up to. Not everyone will say yes. But the fact that not everyone says yes doesn't take away from the reality of Christ's claim. Okay? So it's as if Paul is saying, when I preach the gospel, I'm preaching for a public acknowledgement of the truth. Because it is the truth. But as I proclaim the truth, I'm expecting some to come to faith. Now, when Paul preached the truth and people came to faith, he was able to say, those who've come to faith have been chosen by God. But he didn't preach on the basis that it's only true for those who are chosen. Okay? You've got that point. Because we need to be like that today. We need to be back with this understanding that truth is truth, truth is in Jesus, and the claims of Jesus are clear, and when we present his claims, that's the standard by which we are to be judged in our preaching. So there's an acknowledgement of the truth. The relevant church has got to understand that as part of the relevant word. And let me just say this as well. Because I think it's worth bringing into the mix. Where people do preach Jesus, there is a response from people who want to take hold of reality in the midst of unreality. There is a response. If you preach a Jesus that is, as it were, all things to all men, and you can have whatever Jesus you choose, you just pick your Jesus out of your brain box, you're not going to find many takers. Because people are bright enough to realize that that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. So let's be bold and realize that to be a relevant church proclaiming a relevant word, we've got to believe that the truth is in Jesus. Second point is this. Paul is totally committed to the power of preaching. Now preaching is a puzzle. Because on the one hand you can talk about the power of preaching, but on the other hand you can talk about the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching. Now preaching is not just an exercise whereby you stand up and spout a few facts. There needs to be something more to that. Paul is talking here about preaching being God's means of making his word manifest. 
God wants people to preach. It's God's idea. It's not that God says, here's truth, do what you like with it. God says, here's truth, preach it. Preach it. Now you might say, I don't know how to preach. But God will say, I can deal with that. (laughs) I can deal with that. God can turn any one of us from uh, a silent witness to a public proclaimer. Now, when you preach, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to put a soapbox on your doorstep and start shouting to all of your neighbours. But there are ways in which you communicate the gospel. And that communication of the gospel is so important. Now, there is a reality that preaching can be seen as foolishness. And that's true. I mean, if you just think, how am I in preaching a word, going to change someone's life. Well, (laughs) the transformation that occurs is because of the power of the word. Okay? There is a power in preaching, but the power in preaching is just simply that it's God's chosen means to put his word into people's lives. And at times it will seem foolish. And the devil's always telling you it's foolish, isn't he? He'll come along and say, there's no point speaking of it. There's no, there's no point. They're not going to believe you. you know? Have you ever heard the devil say that? You, well, you might, you might have just thought it was your brain. <laughs> but he's very good at saying that one. He says it to everyone all the time. No, they're not going to believe you, you know. They're not going to believe you. you know? What you believe is so way out that, that no one's ever going to believe you. And he's saying that all the time. So just don't say anything. Just don't say anything. They'll think you're stupid. You know, and he's telling you all of these things. Well, just look in the mirror sometime and you realise that the person looking back at you believed the gospel. You believed it. Someone came and spoke to you and you believed it. And there's the devil saying, they never believe you. Well, I'm sure the devil was saying that to the person who spoke to you. And you proved the devil wrong, didn't you? Well, prove the devil wrong again. When he's saying they don't believe you, you don't know whether they're going to believe you or not. So preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. There's a power in preaching. When you start sharing the truth about Jesus, something will make that truth come alive. You might be thinking, this is just foolishness. But in the midst of the foolishness, God can bring power. Now he's not asking for great eloquent words. There have been times when people have had great eloquent words and they've achieved next to nothing. In fact, there are great debaters and arguers and and they all came down to nothing. And Paul would say, no, it's not like that. It's not that kind of preaching where you're trying to dazzle people with your, your oratory. It's just the power of sharing God's word. No matter how falteringly, once you start sharing that word, it's as if God puts wings on the words. You might not notice it. You might think, I made a terrible hash of that. I didn't share that well. You know, I could have communicated that so much better. Well, praise God, it's not all down to you. There's a power of preaching. When you start speaking, God gives the words wings. The Holy Spirit begins to work. He can take those words and make a difference in people's lives. But Paul said that that word that he preached had been committed to him 
according to the commandment of God our Saviour. No wonder Paul in another place says, it's woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. (laughs) He really understood that he'd had this commitment from the Lord which said, this is the gospel and a commandment which says, now get out there and preach it. Now I know that Paul's command to preach the gospel was pretty strong came on the Damascus road when he'd been going to persecute the church. God steps in and says, you are a chosen ambassador. Well, he was commanded to preach the word. The word was committed to him. But you know, no less to us. No less to us. It might not have been so dramatic. But when you got born again, God committed his word to you. And he made you an ambassador for his kingdom. And he put within you the word of reconciliation that will enable you, just through sharing the good news of Jesus, to reconcile people to God. There's a power in preaching. It may seem foolishness, but once you start speaking, you will discover that God can take the foolishness of preaching and use it to change people's lives. We spend so long trying to polish the seed sometimes. But you know, it's not polishing seed that produces fruit. It's a willingness to bury the seed in the ground. Some of us have been polishing the seeds for so long, we never get round to sharing them. You know, that seed has got to go into the ground and die. And so you just need to let it go. You just tell people what you know. It might be simple, few words but God can use it. You might not be able to preach a whole sermon, but there are people who've got saved on a sentence. In fact, if we went round the room, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if a lot of people sitting here today started their journey into life with less than a sentence. It might just have been a passing thought that just triggered something off. And God used that and used that and used that. There's a power in proclamation of God's word so there's a truth out there that's in Jesus and there's this wonderful reality that if you start sharing God's word God gives those words wings and makes them have power beyond anything that you could possibly imagine and Paul knew this but Paul wasn't a brilliant preacher Paul wasn't a brilliant preacher well he was but it depends how you measure it if you'd stood him up against some of the people who'd gone to oratorical classes and, you know, the way they used to preach in those days, they, they used to actually extend the hand and do it in a, in a style that was classically trained. And Paul, there were times when Paul would adopt the classical style in order to proclaim the word. But generally, you know, he wasn't trying to match himself against the orators of the age because he just wanted to get out there and preach the word. And, you know, sometimes he said, you know, the the word that I preached didn't come to you with excellence of speech, but it came to you in the demonstration and the power of the gospel. So that was his willingness. He went all through Crete preaching the good news of Jesus. And that good news of Jesus took hold in people's hearts. And the third point I wanted to bring out was this that there will be a manifestation of godliness. I I cannot imagine, really, what it was like to have Crete before and Crete afterwards. You know, I read what it is like here. 
And I see that there are still things that need to be done in Crete in order for the church to go on to the next level. But the difference between Crete pre-Paul preaching and Crete post-Paul preaching must have been enormous. And even if we can't get it from our perspective, just think about it from God's perspective. Someone was uh, writing in a book once and they said, you know, just imagine that in the throne room of heaven there's a map of the world. Detailed map, you know, like they can now, where it comes down to each street, each house and everything like that. And God's got this great map. And every time someone comes to faith, a little light goes on. And God knows places by the lights. So he knows your street by the fact that you're there. God thinks, I've got a light on in that street. I've got a light on in that house. I've got some lights on in that city. Look, there's a, there's a collection of lights there. And, and of course, in God's understanding, where there's a collection of lights, there should be an even greater luminosity. But, you know, we don't normally get together and glow together, do we? You know, we don't, we don't have anything to do with that light down the road. They go to a different lampstand. Okay, that's the way we see it. Not of my lampstand. Well, as far as God's concerned, there's a collection of light. Now, just imagine what Crete looked like on God's map, okay? This black island with no light on it at all. (laughs) You know, at one point, a little light pulled into a harbour. And the little light said, let's stay here a bit longer and do some more work on this island. But everyone else said, no, 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 we're going to put to sea. So the little light moves off. And then there's a shipwreck. And the little light ends up on Malta. And people start getting saved on Malta and people start getting healed on Malta. But the little island of Crete is still black. And then Paul comes back to that island with perhaps a team, certainly with Titus. And they're there. Two lights, three lights on that island. I don't know how many are in the team. But then gradually it's not just two lights. There's lights going on all over the island. That island looked different. I mean, even if there wasn't a great manifestation of transformation, as far as God was concerned, there was a huge transformation. In the map in the throne room of heaven, I know it's a speculative map, but you can understand what I mean, that that island went from black to light. (laughs) Suddenly it was light. And it wasn't just one city, but every city. There were lights on in that city. That island was transformed as far as God was concerned. Now there was more work to do, but can you see? Huge difference between the before and after. The pre-preaching island and the post-preaching island. A lot of work to do. Yeah, vibrant life, bubbling up. They'd had a revival on the island. Well, a vival, because you only have a revival where you've had a vive. So they had a vival on the island. <laughs> and suddenly everything was vived, everything was living. And it was all different. And it needed some order brought to it, but not the kind of order of death which squashed it all down again and turned the vive into, you know, dead vive. (laughs) You can't have that. But you know what I mean? Not crushed. But what a difference. Now, what God looks for in that is a manifestation of godliness. Because he says the truth accords with godliness. There's all sorts of philosophies that people buy into and their lifestyle follows their philosophy. If you believe in a hedonistic philosophy, 
your lifestyle will soon start proving your philosophy. Okay? You understand what I mean by that? If you buy into something which basically says satisfying all your pleasures and lust is what it's all about, sooner or later, and probably much sooner than later, your lifestyle will demonstrate your philosophy. Now Paul says that the truth that he proclaims produces godliness. Produces godliness. Now this is wonderful because the truth that he proclaimed is a gospel of grace. And there were people out there who would say grace will never produce godliness. Because if you tell people their sins are forgiven in Jesus, it will just give them a license to go on sinning. I heard someone say once, people don't need a license to sin. They do it quite well without a license. <laughs> but, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's, it's that concept that, well, you know, if there's forgiveness, every time I mess up, I can just go and get forgiveness. So, wow, if God's pleased to forgive me, let's really please Him by messing up some more. Hmm? Now, that's what people thought that a gospel of grace would produce. They thought a gospel of grace would produce lawlessness. Well, in a sense, it does produce lawlessness. But the lawlessness it produces is this, that the people who were once under the law and failing to keep it, now have a law in their hearts which doesn't even require an external law to be imposed on top of them. That's wonderful, isn't it? And the gospel of grace produces godliness. Now that sounds foolishness to some because they would expect that if you go up to someone and say your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name that then that person would say wow, now I can carry on sinning as much as I like. But the truth that's in Jesus has a totally different effect. When you know that you've been forgiven you want to live to please the one who's forgiven you. You don't want to live to please yourself. You want to live to please the one who's forgiven you. And if you mess up, you come back and he forgives you again. And that increases the motivation in your heart to live to please the one who's forgiven you. That's what grace does. Grace doesn't produce arrogance. Grace produces humility. And it's humility that produces holiness. You can't have holiness without humility. You can have something that pretends to be holier than thou, but that's not holiness. That's arrogance. But there's a truth that accords with godliness and when the power of preaching brings people to faith, then the faith that people have produces this godly lifestyle. I'm not talking about perfection, Although we would love to see that perfection. But what is produced is a, a level of commitment and understanding to the Lord. A complete change. Manifestation of godliness. I've heard all sorts of stories like this, where when people respond to the forgiveness that's preached in Jesus, it just affects their lives. I mean, obviously, having worked on some of the big campaigns that we've had in London and being part of things when Billy Graham's been here and other people have been over here, I've heard all of the stories of what's happened when people have come forward in those meetings to give their lives to Jesus. 
people who've then been in the counselling room. And when I've been in charge of the counselling at these events, the messages come back to me. I remember hearing the story of someone who <coughs> was counselled alongside someone else who'd been standing nearby him in the arena. And the story goes that as they were about to go forward to respond to the appeal, to give their lives to Christ, this man said to the person sitting, well, standing next to him at that point, are you going to respond to this message? He said, yup. He said, so am I. And I better give you the wallet back that I've just taken out of your pocket. <laughs> I mean, loads of stories like that. You know, there is a reality that can be quite instantaneous when the gospel of forgiveness gets hold of your heart. But it doesn't just happen in that instant. It produces a, a manifestation of godliness that goes on and on and on and on. The great thing about Crete was that once the lights came on on the island, godliness started to be seen. Godliness started to be seen. We need to see a relevant word that leads to a manifestation of godliness. So this is the message that we've got to preach. If we're going to be a relevant church, you can't avoid the relevant word. There's, there's got to be a proclamation from the church. And it's actually got to be a vocal proclamation. Your lifestyle will speak, but it's not a total substitute for your words. Some of us need the boldness to speak out. And I hope just having gone through this, there's some encouragement here today in this word. Paul had such a commitment to preaching the gospel that once he'd preached in that island and seen people come to life, he was prepared to leave the other things to Titus. What's the priority in our hearts? What's the priority as we think about being a relevant church? Is the priority having a word that transforms people's lives? Or do we think that the relevant church is going to be something static? Because it isn't. The relevant church should be seeing people coming into it on a regular basis because of the transforming power of the gospel that's going out from it. You've probably heard me say this before, but I was at a, a quite a big event on one occasion with lots of ministers there. And uh, I said to them, how many of you church leaders really want to be pastoring a mature church? Now, they didn't know me well. If they did, they would have realized it was a trap. But uh, <laughs> So they sort of put their hands up, said, yeah, 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 we want to be pastoring a really mature church. And I said, so, you know, you want a church where everyone is really well grounded in the word, has been established in the things of God for years, and then gradually it began to dawn on them that a church like that would have not seen anyone saved in ages. Because if you're getting people saved coming into your church, they're not going to be mature. A church should be a mixture of people that are mature, churches that got born people that got born again last week, people who got born again a year ago, people who got born again three years ago. It should be a mixture of people. But that's only going to happen if the church has got a relevant word. So we're going to pray for ourselves. We're going to pray for a fresh confidence in God's word. That passion that Paul had, that made him 
spill out all of these things between saying, hi, I'm Paul, greetings to you, Titus. In those few verses, he just packs in all of these things. So let's pray on it. Father, we want to be people who see the truth as it is in Jesus. And we want to be people who proclaim the truth as it is in Jesus. And we want to be people who live out the truth as it is in Jesus. So Lord, we do believe for the relevance of your word to be evident in our midst. And we just pray for ourselves now, Lord, because there is a need, I'm sure, in your church today for a greater confidence in the truth of your word. Lord, a greater understanding that no matter what philosophies are promulgated out there, that it's Jesus that we take hold of and Jesus who is the truth. It's Jesus whom we proclaim. And so, Father, we come now and we just ask, Lord, that you will make that passion for the truth a reality in our lives. And we pray as well that there will be such a commitment in our hearts to the power of preaching. Lord, truly you committed your word to us when we were born again. And you tell us to be out there as ambassadors of righteousness. And Lord, we want to take that to heart. Lord, I know the enemy comes to discourage comes to convince all of us that there's no point us ever speaking to anybody because no one's ever going to believe and we won't do it properly anyway. Well, we just want to put the lie to that. Lord, just as you are the God who cannot lie, we realise the devil is the devil who cannot tell the truth. And so we just agree right now, we won't listen to his lies, but we will get out there and we will preach the gospel. And Lord, we will believe for a manifestation of godliness. Lord, we realise that in the passage that we've read, Paul links godliness with the hope of eternal life. And Lord, I know that when suddenly we are aware that there is an eternity that we can enter into in you, that that actually changes us. Lord, it changes us. Yes, we change because we've heard the gospel of forgiveness. But Lord, we also have a hope of heaven. And he who has this hope purifies himself. And Lord, we just want to see that purity of that hope take hold in our hearts. Lord, we want to be people who are living for eternity, ready for that which is to come. But Lord, relevant in our readiness. Lord, let that be true for each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about Hugh Osgood's ministry, visit www.hughosgood.com. There you'll find ministry updates, new and free Bible teaching resources and videos, as well as information on upcoming events and broadcasts on TV and radio. We trust you have been encouraged by this message.